Numbers chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed only spoken through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who are on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward and he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud was removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp for seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazeroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. This is a wonderful passage that Moses has written. One of the ironies that we won't spend too much time in is um, in verse 3, now the man Moses was very meek. Normally it's translated in other English translations as humble or the most humble. And so Moses was allowed to wear that most humble badge and no one could take it from him. So this is a wonderful passage, and one of the beautiful things about this passage is that it really helps us to develop a sense of how to read narratives or accounts. And it also is simultaneously a training or an environment in which we might test our approach to reading the scriptures. So for example, we, we learned how to read the scriptures by the scriptures. That's a deeply wonderful Protestant doctrine called the clarity and a big term, perpiscuity, which that you don't have to know what that means. It just means that it's able to be pierced, like, like a veil which is pierced, a veil which is parted. The scriptures are somewhat veiled, 
and yet the Holy Spirit is uh, sufficient to work on the heart of a Christian such that he applies the scriptures to them. And one of the things that we have to do is, is test how we read the scriptures. As, as disciples of Christ, we ought to see or verify whether our approach to reading the scriptures makes sense. And the key to making sense of the scriptures is manifold. It certainly involves comparing our understanding with various understandings throughout the church in her history. And we can do that by reading commentaries and asking other Christians what they think about our interpretation. But the other, the the primary test, the the chief aim or the chief presentation, the chief uh, verification that our reading of the passage is correct is if we see something about Jesus Christ. And we have to be able to test our understanding of the Old Testament against the New Testament. Reading the Old Testament and not seeing Christ is not reading the Old Testament as a Christian. I just want to explain that to you because so often we approach the scriptures in a devotional context. And we read something like this account and we, we tend to moralize. And I've given examples of this in the past. In fact, I think it was just last week when we talked about David and Goliath very quickly. The story of David and Goliath, which is so familiar to us, is Goliath comes and challenges the armies of Israel. None of the Israelites are able to meet the challenge, but David, who trusts in the Lord, rises up, has faith in God, calls out Goliath, like Babe Ruth pointing out his shot, and totally nails him with the stone, cuts off his head, and then the Israelite armies mop up the Philistines. And so then the moral is, David was able to conquer because he trusted in God, so you need to trust in God as well. That's moralizing. Now, that's not necessarily wrong, but that is not the doctrine of the faith. That's not the gospel. The gospel is this, that Moses or sorry, that David was simply one who was a pointer or shadow to Jesus Christ. And even David himself succumbed to the very same temptations that you and I face. What were David's sins recorded in the scripture? One of them was that he he touched Saul's cloak when Saul was looking for him, and David still was running from Saul. Saul uh, was trying to murder David, yet Saul was still God's appointed authority for the time being. And David's heart smote him, saying that he shouldn't have done that. That was one of David's sins, which is very similar to our passage today. Another sin that David committed, of course, is the famous one. He committed adultery with Bathsheba and actually murdered her husband through setting up circumstances. He, 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 he got his army involved in a conspiracy to cover up adultery by murdering someone. And so ultimately, even though David killed Goliath, David didn't defeat sin. The point is this, that David was merely a pointer. The story was wrought by God, was formed by God, shaped by God to tell us something about Christ. And that only if we take faith in Christ, only if we rest in Christ, can we even hope to have any small measure of victory. You and I cannot defeat the Goliaths in our lives, sin, Satan, and death. And Christ not only has defeated death once for all, but his victory will eventually become yours in the resurrection. That's what it means to preach the gospel from the Old Testament. And so my desire for you as you 
you know, continue to be a disciple of Christ is that you might be able to read the Old Testament in such a way as that you see the glory of Jesus. And in seeing the glory of Jesus, you are transformed to greater degrees of glory. That the Holy Spirit would sanctify you by applying the word of God and transforming your life such that certain types of sins and problems that are explained through these stories would train you not in a moralizing fashion, but in a faith-filled fashion, in a heart that looks away from oneself to the object of your faith, that is Christ. And so I want to give an example of how you might test a theory. We're going to develop a theory by looking through the story, and then we're going to see whether it makes sense. The, the way that we're going to do that is by looking at the story in five stages. First, Miriam, Miriam and Aaron's sins. Now, both of them committed sins, although we're, we're talking about this in the context of Miriam, specifically because she was judged with a curse, and Aaron, temporarily by God's design and grace, did not receive that curse. And so we might be able to understand that Miriam was maybe perhaps the instigator or the one who drove or you know, kind of corralled Aaron into her sin. But nevertheless, Miriam and Aaron sin together, and they sin in more than just one way, as we're going to look. I want to look at Yahweh's judgment coming and the pattern of his judgment comings throughout Scripture. We're going to see this all the way back to Genesis. Every great, wonderful doctrine is found in Genesis 1 through 3. And so we're going to look at something that takes place in the patterns of Genesis and, and see how it works here. We're going to look at Miriam's leprosy, the cause for it, what it was designed to point out or to imply or to say that is the nature of her disease was such that it said something about the type of sin that she had committed. We're going to look at Aaron and Moses's intercession for Miriam. First, Aaron intercedes to Moses and then Moses intercedes to Yahweh. And what an interesting idea that, that Aaron is interceding first to Moses. You might have heard Old English uh, maybe you've heard a story or two in Old English which has in, included the phrase, I entreat thee, uh, what it, or I pray thee. You know, if you've ever read Shakespeare, you've, you've heard, I pray thee. In English, we do not use the word pray to talk to other people anymore. That's, that's kind of an old use of the term. But the reason we even use that term is because English was radically shaped by the King James Bible. And so... Aaron's entreaty or Aaron's prayer to Moses was a petition that Moses would intervene on Miriam's behalf because both Miriam and Aaron, by, by the fact that they were guilty of sin, were not able to approach God as we're going to see in this passage. And all of these things will come together to form a composite picture of the gospel. That is, you and I are to learn from Miriam and Aaron's sin. We're, learn, we're to learn for, uh, from Aaron's righteous petition of Moses. We're to learn from Moses' petition to Yahweh, but we're not to learn it in a way that we are encouraged just to hunker down and not, uh, not commit any of the sins that Miriam has committed. We're actually to learn about it in such a way as we might see something about the fact that we ourselves have been and, and often are just like Miriam. So first we're going to look at their sin, the nature of it, the cause of it, what it was designed to imply. Miriam, Miriam and Aaron speak against Moses' marriage of the Cushite women, woman. In the Septuagint, the, the word for Cushite is always translated as Ethiopian. 
And we have some wonderful friends in our church, wonderful members who we've known for decades. And you might know some people who are Ethiopian. Uh, I don't know if this is a thing that holds to the modern period, but it was designed in the scriptures, that is, the scriptures imply that Ethiopians or Cushites were extremely dark in their skin compared to the Hebrews. Now, I'm not saying that the Hebrews were white people, but they had some difference in external appearance. And this may or may not hold, but I know a few Ethiopians that this holds very well for. They're, they're extremely dark-skinned people. And what happens in this passage is actually a deeply relevant issue to today's culture. Moses, uh, Moses has married this woman, and God did not speak against Moses when he did this. Miriam and Aaron take issue with Moses' decision and actually accuse him of committing some sort of sin or misstep or mistake. And so they reason that Moses has sinned before Yahweh because they have married, he has married outside their ethnicity. This is explicitly a form of racism that Miriam and Aaron are are engaging with. And whenever we see something like this, a, a deep national sin, especially a sin that's in the national conversation, we ought to be careful not to read into the scriptures to see this. And so when I accuse Miriam and Aaron of committing racism and pride here, which they do, I test that against the historic understanding and exegesis of this passage. That is to say, we can't simply look at cultural events and then try to find somewhere in the scriptures that might apply. We're not throwing jello at walls and hoping it sticks. We are, but on the contrary, commentators for hundreds of years have included this understanding that Miriam and Aaron's jealousy was primarily motivated because they, in their own estimation of the effect, of the facts, had thought that Moses sinned in violating some sort of law of God by marrying outside the people of the Hebrews at the time. God himself never spoke anything against Zipporah. And nevertheless, Miriam and Aaron put themselves in the place of God to, to utter a decree. We're going to see that in just a minute, that that decree was evil. And so they, they engage in not only racism, but also pride. And really, racism and pride go hand in hand. This is a sin that the American church has been guilty of for hundreds of years. And by that I mean that we have sought to, at various times in the church, we have sought to baptize or sanctify or, or kind of, you know, uh, Christianize our hatred of other cultures and races, specifically between black and white relations in this country. And it's only within the last 50 or 60 years that the church has begun to repent of this, even though it wasn't a wholesale doctrine that had invaded the church, there were large portions of the church that were attempting to justify their sin of racism with the scriptures. And so this scripture is deeply relevant today, but it's not just deeply relevant in the aspect of racism, but also the pride that always attends to racism. Pride is exalting yourself over and above another image bearer of God. That is to say, men and women who are made in the image of God share in equal dignity and worth. You are not more important because you were born in America than someone who was born in Australia or someone who was born in the Amazon. You are not more important because you have a better education. Those aren't racism necessarily. Those, that might be a classism, but nevertheless, it's the same sort of sin. It's a pride. It's an exaltation of oneself or one's ethnicity over and against another. And it's the attribution of negative qualities 
what we might call stereotyping to some other ethnicity. For example, this works both positive and negatively. One of the, one of the positive examples or a, um, a good type of racism, if you will, and I, I'm not claiming that racism is good, but we, we have this stereotype in America that Asian Americans are all very smart and are all very diligent and hardworking. That's not the case. Um, but, but the reason it's a stereotype is because of cultural forces that have been at play in our, in our world. Uh, rich people from Japan, China, and the other, all, of, all of the Far East uh, have sent their students and children to America, and those people who have the ability to send their children and students are often wealthy, educated families. And so it just happens to be that we have an overwhelming majority of Asian Americans who are extremely bright and gifted and hardworking. And so we project a good stereotype. That's just as much racism as negative stereotyping, although it's not a, a sin that's often ever named or repented of. We ought not to judge other people's by appearances. This is an extremely important fact. Uh, some of the, the most deeply uh, painful moments of repentance in my own life have come after you know, an hour or two having interacted with another person, a stranger or whatever, and then being convicted by the Holy Spirit, you judge them in your heart based on their appearance. It is not the same thing to have compassion on people that you see in a plight or a distress, but at the same time, if you go around judging people based on what they look like or what they smell like or what they uh, seem to be or how they speak, you are committing the sin of pride and ultimately probably the sin of racism. These are sins that go hand in hand and therefore they ought to be repented of. Miriam and Aaron commit this sin and they commit it with resolve. They attempt to use it as a justification for their rebellion. They think because of Moses' failure, they should take up authority in leading the people for Yahweh has also spoken to them. Now that's true that God did at various times speak to Aaron and Miriam. In fact, in the Exodus, Miriam leads out a team of worshipers uh, the women who go outside the camp and lead a procession of victory. And she sings a song. And this is a wonderful example of God operating through women in his, his people. Nevertheless, they cannot simply overrule Moses' authority based on their preconceived notions of righteousness. They are not the arbiters of truth. Miriam and Aram spoke against Moses because of the Cushite women whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. I want you to notice the poetry in that line. See how they say it twice? The reason being is the writer seeks to convey to his readers that this was their only reason for what they were doing. He says, because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. The poetry here is quite clear, and it's designed to say that they had a superficial reason, that Moses had not mis, uh, making a, uh, taken a misstep, but rather that they had sought to overthrow his authority. Verse 2, and they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Notice how clearly this sounds like the serpent's voice, has indeed. Has he not also spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Each day in the creation... Yahweh takes a look at the things that he has made. He, he makes something in the world and then comes down or takes notice, observes with his eyes, and pronounces a judgment, whether that thing be good or bad. 
Day after day, we see this pattern. Yahweh makes something in the world. He comes down, observes, and then pronounces a blessing or a curse upon it. In God pronouncing good on the creation, he invests it with his blessing. And when he pronounces something as evil or sin, he ultimately pronounces a curse or a judgment. And so when Adam and Eve sin, Yahweh comes down to observe and then pronounce judgment. This is a pattern that's beginning to build in the scriptures. We see it in Genesis 1, where day by day, God evaluates the things which he has made. And now he's come to evaluate how Adam has behaved. How has Adam obeyed the commandment to tend and to keep the garden, to protect the things in the garden, and ultimately to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve therefore hide themselves because they were afraid, for they saw they were naked. Genesis 3, uh, verse 7 and 10 bring this out quite clearly. Yahweh says to them, who told you you were naked? See, the, the, the issue in God's authority is whether or not we listen to our voice or the voice of the serpent or if God is able to pronounce or evaluate. That is, who is the standard of truth? Does truth relate to what you or I think, or does truth relate to God's understanding of reality? Yahweh knows that they have taken from the tree and have begun to decide for themselves what is good and evil. Ultimately, this is what it is in our first sin. It is our desire to take hold of the authority to determine right and wrong, to be the masters of our own universes and lives. This is exactly what the sin of our first parents is. Man does not pronounce what is good or evil, Yahweh does. This is a very important application, even before we get to the gospel in this passage, that you ought not to speak against things your brothers and sisters do when there's no, not only no scriptural warrant, but you have no real authority to even share with them concerning that matter. This is one of the things that I always think about whenever somebody brings up the fact, it's no surprise, it's no secret that people in our church drink alcohol. And yet, that often is a stumbling block for many people, and they, they seek to establish themselves as their own standard of righteousness, and then condemn their brother or sister who engages in something that the scriptures say was given to man for joy. And yet, they believe that they are the arbiter of truth. They are the, the judge before whom the entire universe comes to be evaluated. But it is not you and I. God is the one who pronounces good or evil. So Yahweh comes and he pronounces curses upon the serpent, the woman, Adam, and the earth. Now, not all of these curses are alike, although they all have the same cause. And one of the things that I love to bring out is the notion of two or three witnesses in the scripture. If you take some time this week, to, I would encourage you to go look at Genesis 3 and just look at the structure of what is going on. God interviews Adam. He puts Adam on the jury stand, or the, the uh, witness stand. He then interviews Adam what has happened. Adam testifies that the woman did it. And then the woman is put on the witness stand. She would later be called Eve. She doesn't have her name of Eve yet. She then says, the serpent deceived me. And at this point, Yahweh, having two witnesses, does not ask the serpent to testify. He then pronounces a judgment on the serpent. And that great serpent, of course, is a shadow and a pointer of, of Satan. And so it, it ought not, we ought not to interview Satan or get his opinion on what, what, what happens. And so... 
So God is, is pronouncing these curses, and he puts a curse on the serpent, he puts a curse on the woman, and through the curse on Adam, there also comes a curse on the world, on the earth itself. We talked about this in the last few weeks, about the fact that Romans 8 shows that God has put a curse on the earth, not as a full and final and complete judgment, but only that it would not be blessed apart from him. That is to say, while sin was still in the earth, having its effect over the created order, God did not wish for the creation to go on existing without his blessing. This is his chief motive when he expels Adam and Eve from the garden, right? He says that he needs to expel them lest they try to eat from the tree of life. The idea being that they would be persisted in their evil or encouraged in their evil. And so God pronounces judgments, and he either blesses or he curses. And it's so important to understand this, because when we say God pronounces judgments, we don't mean that God just comes around judging people. It's not that we believe that God is a harsh judge, rather God is the only fair and true judge. So God is always in the business of judging. You and I are blessed or cursed in a temporary fashion based on whether or not we walk according to the spirit or whether we walk according to the flesh. That's what Paul means when he says to walk according to the flesh is death. It breeds death. And the very effects of of sin are often wrought out through our circumstances, but those are not the final word. And in fact, we're going to see that is actually a very good thing indeed. Just as Yahweh's eyes are in every place, he also hears Miriam and Aaron's conspiracy as it says that they said together or they whispered together. In verse four, it says, suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. Now in this scenario, it's a little bit different than in Genesis. Yahweh doesn't make so many interviews so uh, so as much as he makes pronouncements. Here we see this pattern of God's judgment coming in full force. Here he notices what's going on, and then he comes down, and then will pronounce a curse. In verse 5, the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. So Yahweh discerns the evil in Miriam and Aaron's jealousy, and he names it for what it is, and he calls them to the entrance of the tent. And I think it's highly relevant here that they aren't allowed or permitted to go into the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting was where Moses had gone to behold God face to face and to be with him. And it says that Joshua would often come and he would stay just barely in the entrance of the tent. Here, Miriam and Aaron and Moses are commanded to come to the entrance of the tent. If you take a look at Leviticus 4, this is often the place where God commands the sin offering to be offered or the animal for the sin offering to be slain, because you cannot come into the presence of God with sin, because you would be destroyed. Yahweh vindicates Moses, and he corrects their aspersions, that is, their, their perversions of, of what they thought was going on, and he, can, he vindicates Moses and uh, upholds Moses' authority and role. So they have spoken against Moses, and now God himself will set the record straight. You see, they have basically said, Moses is unfit to lead his people. We ought to take authority. And here Yahweh comes and says, you're not the standard. I'm the standard. I will come and pronounce whether or not Moses is in sin or not. 
verse 6, and he, sa- and he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Yahweh does not wait around for an answer. This question that is posited to them, this inquiry that Yahweh makes is concerning their lack of fear and it shows that Moses is a true spokesman. It might be, you might consider this to be a rhetorical question. As in God is saying, because of the nature of the relationship between Moses and myself, because Moses beholds me face to face and speaks for me, he is my spokesman, why did you not fear? You ought to have feared to, spoken, to have spoken against Moses. And so Yahweh comes and sets the record straight. He vindicates Moses' authority and role and establishes an a inquiry into their heart. This is what the psalmist says, Search me and know me, God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Give me the fear of the Lord. Moses and Aaron do not have the fear, uh, sorry, Miriam and Aaron do not have the fear of the Lord. And so at Yahweh's judgment being pronounced, he departs and leaves the tent. Their sin and rejection of the authority of Moses ultimately becomes an aspect of desolation. This is a very important theme throughout the scriptures, that whenever the people of God, especially the leaders of the people of God, reject God's authority or reject the one sent from God, that it causes a desolation, that is, a removal of the presence of God and glory of God from the house of God. See here in verse 9, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against them and he departed. In verse 10, here, this cloud which is leading the people through the wilderness, the cloud of smoke by day and the pillar of fire by night. It says, the cloud removed from over the tent and behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam and behold, she was leprous. The sin of God's people always causes a departure in some measure, some respect of the glory of God from his people. This is so important to understand. Like the sin of, of Achan at the Battle of Ai, uh, your sin is not a private matter. Your sin has effects larger than yourself. Your sin is not a private thing. Miriam and Aaron conspire together to overthrow the authority of Moses by seeking to usurp his position, to take his authority, to become the new leaders of Israel, and to cast him off, perhaps even murder him, might, might have been the end course of their design here. Nevertheless, God comes in, stops the, the rebellion, and then ushers a judgment. But what, he, what happens in his judgment is that because they are even near the tent of meeting, he withdraws from a time, for a time. Miriam becomes leprous like snow. And I think her sin and the nature of her leprosy is deeply relevant to us. The question is, why leprosy and not, other, not some other disease? Why is she struck with leprosy and not just simply killed outright? And I think for, for many reasons, of course, the grace of God is, is in operation. Of course, God is sovereignly working through these situations in order to bring about some good for our benefit. Nevertheless, God uses this leprosy to say something about the nature of Miriam's sin. First, God is contrasting the darkness of Moses' bride Zipporah and the whiteness of Miriam. It's an irony. It's a joke. Yahweh is exposing the sin of Miriam for what it is. It's folly and it's high-handed rebellion. It's, 
It's foolishness. And so he pokes fun at her, says, you don't like black people? I'll make you as white as you can be. In their own eyes, Aaron and Miriam were able to hear from God, and so they decided what God would say, and now as Aaron looks at her, he sees her sin for what it is. You see, they have the perspective that they can hear from God, that they can see from God, or see God as he is, and now as soon as God brings a judgment, a micro curse that will eventually be lifted, although it's very real at the time, that they actually begin to have real spiritual sight. In their haughtiness and pride, they presume that they can see God. And, and this is what God is getting at. He says uh, that, that I make myself known to them in a vision. It's important to see that Aaron, as he looks to Miriam, is actually having true sight for the nature of sin. In their own eyes, they see God, but now Aaron shows what's really at play. And then the second aspect, the first, the deep irony of what's going on, in the text is important. The second one is that her leprosy forces her to leave the camp, but not in the way that Moses does. There's often a pattern of Moses in the, in the time in the wilderness. It says that Moses would often pitch the tent outside the assembly. Why outside the assembly? Because there was sin in the camp. And so Moses would leave the assembly to go and be with Yahweh face to face at the house of the Lord. And yet, Miriam considers her to be, to be in the exact same position uh, as he does, or he is. Miriam's second sin is a presumption that being, by, being used by God equated to hearing from God such that she could overthrow a different authority. Your giftings, your callings, your insight into the scriptures, your wisdom, your charity, your service never give you the right or authority to cast off the authorities that God has placed over you. Now, I don't mean that in total. For example, there are certain elements in our political scenario which I, thought, I think we ought to cast off invalid, tyrannical authority. That's not what's going on in this text. And in fact, it often is construed that this is one of the strongest points of the text. That is, Moses' authority is not only upheld, it's not only right, but because of the purity of it, it is kind of contrasted in what go, is going on in Miriam in her judgment. Moses goes out the, outside the tent to pitch the tent, and uh, uh, sorry, outside the camp to pitch the tent in order to hear from the Lord, but she goes out to bear her guilt. And finally, we might see something, although allegorical, in the nature of the disease itself. Leprosy is a chronic infection. And one of the things that I learned or have learned over the years in studying leprosy and reading various accounts, one of the interesting things about the disease is that it's not immediately apparent when you're infected. Leprosy is a disease that's caused by a bacteria, and it can be dormant in a person's body. The bacteria can live but not produce any symptoms for decades. And so this aspect of the nature of the disease, I think, has something to say about the type of sin that uh, Miriam and Aaron uh, imbibe in. Rather than protect Moses, Miriam gives in to accusation and attacks him. Her sickness, therefore, is a manifestation of what she's already done in the spirit. She has failed to discern the body. She has failed to protect and uphold someone in the body of, of the people of God. So as soon as Aaron sees this, he intercedes, and he then identifies with her sin, not dismissing his uh, guilt, but rather identifying with it. This is a wonderful aspect. He says, oh, my Lord, do not punish us 
because we have done foolishly and have sinned. The intercessory nature of what Aaron is doing is quite clear. Even though Aaron himself did not fall under the curse of leprosy, he identifies the punishment on Miriam as equally applying to himself because he took part in this sin. He says, let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. So Aaron understands the nature and heart of intercession and he enters into the suffering of his sister and Although it's extremely macabre, the language that's used, half eaten away, it's extremely dark. I believe that this language is deeply relevant to us, and it's my major jumping off point to where we're going to see how does this apply to us. Moses accepts Aaron's entreaty and prays to the Almighty. He says, oh God, please heal her, please. And then Yahweh says, if her father had, spit in, uh, had but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that, she may be brought in. Now, you and I read this, and we think, man, that's kind of harsh, God. And yet I would, I would say to you that you, again, are beginning to exhibit the very problem in the text. You are not the decider of authority. You are not the arbiter of righteousness. You don't decide good and evil. God does. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. You see, we hear Yahweh's commandment for her to be expelled from the camp, which is the right and due consequence for leprosy, and we think, God, that's so harsh, and yet God could have and should have probably killed her immediately, along with Aaron. And in fact, if you go just chapters before this, Nadab, Abihu, the sons of Korah, all of these people do similar sins and are killed on the spot. And so God has not only been gracious in having any sort of temporary provision of mercy, but the expulsion from her from the camp is ultimately to be undone. He says it will only be seven days. Yahweh determines to heal her, but, she, but he lets the sanction come upon her for a small time. So how are we to learn from this? Are we to simply hear that Miriam sinned by rebelling against spiritual authority and then resolve within ourselves to not do the same? No, I think we miss much of the point of the text unless we begin to press out what's going on in this. And you may have picked up on some of the elements we'll discuss but uh, it, nevertheless, it's important to see that God's judgments are righteous, true, and altogether holy. God's judgments are never imperfect. God is the only righteous, perfect, impartial judge. And in fact, he has promised one day to judge all the world by his son. And so we ought not to read accounts in the scripture, hear of God's judgment, and think in our hearts, boy, that was really intense, or Yahweh, how could you have done that? Or boy, I'm sure glad we have the God of the New Testament, not the God of the Old. <laughs> if you ever are convinced of that, go read the book of Acts and go and, and, and look at the example from uh, what, Ananias and Sapphira. Thank you. And this is an exact parallel passage. They are judged right immediately. So even though Miriam and Aaron act in evil, through their example, God graciously warns his people and in fact gives us deep hope. It is a better thing that this has taken place than had it not taken place. Ultimately, even though Miriam and Aaron conspire for evil, God subverts their intention and superimposes his desire to bring about a good effect. 
We must not miss, therefore, the gospel focus of the passage. Aaron's petition to Moses is that Miriam might not be as one dead. Even though she stands before him, she not only looks dead, but if not cured from her sickness, she ultimately would succumb to it. Leprosy that has taken over an entire body is a death sentence. Your organs will shut down. Infection will set in. Sepsis and uh, amputation and all of these things are her future should she not be healed. This is important to see. Even though she stands there de- uh, alive, Aaron says that she is one who is like dead. She sa- Aaron says that Miriam is one who is like one in a stillborn state. And so it must, it must be no surprise that the gospel application is that Miriam must be born again. She's one who's stillborn, one who comes out of life and already is dead on arrival. And yet the message of the gospel is that all men are dead on arrival. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory. You and I are in the exact same scenario as Miriam. We, we talked about this last week when we When we read the scriptures, we often put the evil person on the other side, and we're always on the good side. But the way the scriptures come to us is that we're Miriam. I'm Aaron. Miriam's sins are extremely common to all of us. We judge by external appearance. I have done this so many times, probably even in this week. We judge by external appearance. We seek our own authority. It is a deeply tragic thing if someone's given authority before they're ready for it. And it is also deeply tragic if you obtain authority seeking it. This is one of the reasons why the scriptures say, let not many of you become teachers. Now, that's not saying you're justified in your apathy to the scriptures. It's saying that teachers ought to not take the responsibility lightly. They will bear a stricter judgment. Woe are those who pervert the word of God. Our land is filled with them. They will incur a stricter judgment. Not only judging by external appearance, seeking our own authority, but also harboring bitterness. Like I said, this disease of leprosy, I think is there's a spiritual import to the nature of it that it infects a person and doesn't show up for years. And yet when it begins to take over, it must be treated right away and quickly and fully. Thankfully, just as Aaron intercedes for Miriam, Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. The gospel parallels here are quite clear, and they are beautiful, and they are rich. Christ ever lives to make intercession for us, and not only does he make intercession for us, but like Aaron and his identification with the sins of Miriam, Christ himself teaches us through his apostles' clear instruction that we ought to confess our sins that we might be healed. Aaron clearly confesses in the middle of his petition for healing. And so we ought not to think that we can come to Christ and simply ask Christ for healing, yet not identifying the sin which is so deeply taken root in our life. Moreover, Moses points also to Christ because Christ has power to heal both body and soul and to bring us from death to life. In the account with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus is hearing the message of Jesus that Jesus says to him, you must be born again if you are to perceive or enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says to, to Jesus, how can, a, how can this be? Can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? And the answer is quite clearly, no, it's impossible. Miriam in her, in her stillborn state is not only dead on arrival, but she has a death that is destined to end with death. That is, 
what the scriptures talk about when they talk about the sin of Adam, that in dying you will die. The, the English standard translates it, you shall surely die, but in the King James, it's a much more literal translation from the Hebrew that says, in your death, in your sin, in your throwing yourself away from the author of life, it will lead to death. In your dying, you shall die. Not only can Christ raise us to new life, he can absolutely restore us, and he promises that in the gospel, that those who trust in him, even though they die, they will yet once again live. And not only that, often the gospel is just truncated with individual salvation, but I want you to see the full import of the passage. Miriam is not only healed, although she does succumb to the the curse and the judgment, the sanction, for a certain small amount of time, namely one week, she is ultimately restored to the people of God. Though we face, and we often do this, we face real results and consequences of our sin, that is, things happen in our circumstance or life, whether it's being fired from a job or having a relationship dissolve or a a divorce or the death of a loved one or going to jail. These are things that befall Christians. These are things that happen to people who make deep and grievous sins. And though they have for, for a short amount of time a sanction upon them or a small curse upon them, ultimately it is not going to be persistent. Not only can Christ raise you to new life, not only can Christ teach you how to confess your sins that you might be healed, but Christ also can restore you to fellowship with the people of God. That ultimately is what the gospel is about. It is putting orphans with families. It is taking the stranger and the alien and giving them a home in his people, being empowered by his spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask that you would allow us to have eyes to see that we would see you on every page and that you would give us a deep hunger for the word. Moreover, Lord, we are like Miriam. We have been like Aaron. We have not only grumbled against authority, we have grumbled against parents and pastors and disciplers and people who are trying to help us. We have looked often at governmental leaders and considered them to be fools. We have thought of of people in authority in every sphere of life in wrong ways. We are fully like Miriam and Aaron. We are like those who were born dead. We ask you, God, that you would deliver us from our sin, that you would allow us to experience the wonderful new birth in Christ, that we would not only see our great need for him, but that we would also take courage in your great promises to restore us and to put us at home with your people. In Jesus' name, amen.